Good afternoon, everyone. Um, this is our second attempt, which we just tried a few minutes ago and uh, found out that things weren't working. So that's the reason for our uh, late start at this point. Not a problem. We'll catch up. Uh, we have been talking over the past 19 lessons that uh, about um, a wide variety of things that help us understand uh, the reason that God exists or does he exist and how we can know that he does exist. Um, he is into a series of lessons right now where he's talking about uh, the design, God's design for mankind, for how we worship him, um, how, how he delivers his will to us, and uh, how science uh, backs up the things that we find in the scriptures so that we can have that confirmation. Uh, not that we um, necessarily need it, but it certainly strengthens our faith in the scripture that it is scientifically sound, that there is what he refers to as biblical checkability, um, and that there is um, considerable, um, you could even say 100% uh, scientific accuracy in the Bible. Today he's going to talk about um, another part of that design the design that he has for his will for mankind, and that's the um, the church, the organization, the group of believers that exist uh, on this planet who um, have obeyed what he expects us to do, to be his, and a little bit about what he expects from us in the way of worship. So let's go ahead and see what Clayton has to say. Are they hearing you? Huh? Are they hearing you? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I can't see the movie at all, the video at all. Well, it's not on over here. Like the, I'm looking on the on our Facebook page. Okay, you can't find I the can't slot for yeah. that. Oh, I'll have to there, said Clay. you are listening, technology is always interesting. Huh. Our problems <clears throat> include that uh, Chris cannot find the spot on Facebook where this is being um, viewed. And if uh, if you have found it, <laughs> let us know. Let us know somehow. Um, All I see is the old one. Shoot me a text or Chris a text or a quick email to let us know that we're on. It says live on his phone. Okay, she says it's working. Okay, okay. someone says it's working. Let's go. <laughs> we apologize. Um, and we'll lay all of this at the feet of Chris, because <laughs> right. I, <laughs> I have I have no no responsibility with the technical side of this, and uh, couldn't do it without him. Um, as a result, um, so uh, we're going to go ahead. I've said my preview uh, twice now, and <laughs> so uh, we'll go ahead with the video. Welcome to the Does God Exist video series, program number 20. And this is uh, sort of a concluding part of a section of our videos that have dealt with the question of which God. We talked about the concept of religious pluralism. We've talked about the fact that no matter what religious view you might hold, obviously people are going to believe that that is the right way to worship, the right way to do things. 
tolerance is not recognizing differences, not discussing differences, not even criticizing differences. Tolerance is when you can differ and allow one another to function in peace and in harmony. And we have monstrous respect for people who are committed to the Muslim faith, to the Buddhist faith, to the Hindu faith. We do not denigrate them personally at all, but having said that, we also do not practice the things they practice because of our study, because of our examination of both the Bible and the religious alternatives. And we've looked at evidence of that. We've talked about internal evidence. We've talked about the checkability of the systems, and we've talked about the design of the systems. Part of that design system is the question of how we worship, what the church is. I've had, in the 40 five years or so I've been doing my public lectures on college campuses and in town meetings, a number of times when somebody says to me, yeah, okay, I can believe in God, yeah, I can believe the Bible is God's word, but don't give me any of this church junk. <laughs> church junk? Yeah, I can understand that feeling. As an atheist, I certainly viewed the church as junk. But what I understood the church to be was what I saw in my communities, the denominations, the structures, the inconsistencies. What I did not understand was the true nature of the church. And so what we want to do in this discussion is talk about God's actual design for the church. This lesson is three hours long. Don't get worried. What I want to do is to present a small part of it. I do want to mention to you that I have a sheet that has a complete discussion of all of these points that we're making, and that is available upon request. And if you'd like to spend time looking at all these things, we can do so, and we can provide those for you. Let me point out, first of all, that we've already dealt a little bit with some of these concepts. We've already talked about the fact that the biblical concept of the church and the alternative are very different. In the biblical record, we see that God seeks man. Revelation 3 and verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's unique. In reincarnation religious systems, such as Hinduism, man is asked to reach God. And reincarnation is the result of man's failure to reach God. So there's a difference, and I would suggest to you that that's a difference that has to be explored. It's also interesting as you look and as you make comparisons between these various systems that the relationship we have to God is important. In the biblical system, there is no one between you and God. 1 Timothy 2.5 says it well, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. My relationship to God is personal between me and God. There is no priest between me and God. There is no spiritual hierarchy, no authority that I must go to to reach God. Now, I know there are religious organizations, even in the broad spectrum of Christianity, that have taught that there is someone between me and God, but that is not what the Bible presents. And I'm only talking about what the Bible actually presents here. And I suggest to you the wisdom is obvious. What happens if the person between me and God has their own personal life messed up? And there have been cases like that, have there not? It's beautiful that I have a relationship to God that even though I am inadequate in every way, I can actually talk to God. I can pray to God personally. I don't need somebody between me and God. It's also interesting in these discussions to realize what the church is. That the church is not a structure, that it's not a building, that it is a spiritual body that we're talking about. So in 1 Corinthians 3.16, we read, Know you not that you are the temple of God, that God's Spirit dwells in you. We don't need a cathedral. We don't need a sacred building. We don't need a sanctuary. Now, there's no problem in having those things, but they're not essential. I can worship God in a cornfield, I have had times when I have sat in the mountains on a cliff and worshipped God. The church is people. The church is not buildings, not brick and mortar. 
And may I suggest to you the whole concept of heaven is a unique and beautiful concept. We have a tendency to let Dante's Inferno influence us in our conception of what heaven and hell are about. But I think it's important to understand that the viewpoint of the Bible on these things is that hell is separation from God and all the awful things that go with that. And heaven is a continual association with God. If a person is an atheist, if they wanted nothing to do with God in this life, why would they want to have anything to do with God in the hereafter? And we could spend a great deal of time discussing what hell is and what heaven is. That's not our purpose here, but simply to notice the alternatives, the comparisons between these. What I would like to focus on in this particular presentation is not so much these things, but to talk about what we do in terms of our actual worship of God. Why does God tell us to do the things he has called us to do? And let, let, let's talk about a couple of these. We won't have time to deal with all of them, and I personally think it, in an apologetics discussion there are only certain ones that would be useful anyway. But let, let, let's talk a little bit about some of these. For instance, let's talk about praying. Now, we are told to pray. I mean, there's no question about this. You can read passages like Philippians 4 and verse 6. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. We're told to pray. In Ephesians 6 and verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. We're told to pray. There are other passages that talk about prayer. Why are we told to pray? What purpose is there in praying? Is your concept of prayer that, that God is in heaven wanting us to tell him what's going on? Does God need our information and so that's why we need to pray? You know, if, if that's your concept of what prayer is about, then your concept of God is misguided. If in him we live and move and have our being, then God doesn't need us to give him information. God has complete knowledge of everything even that we think. Well, is it an ego problem? Is God saying, I'm having a bad hair day today? You know, I've never had problems with bad hair days, but that might be another subject. The important thing to understand here is that we don't pray to God because God has a bad personal image. That God has some kind of an ego problem and we need to boost him up, otherwise he's going to be in clinical depression. That is not the purpose of prayer. And I think it's important to realize that prayer is not something given for God's benefit. God doesn't need prayer. He doesn't need our information. He doesn't need our praise. We're not talking a human that has personal inadequacies and feelings of inferiority. We're told to pray because we need to learn to look to a higher power. It was interesting that in most 12-step programs, that, that very statement is present. Learn to look to a higher power. That's not just good advice for the person who is struggling with an addiction. It's good advice for me. I need to look beyond myself. I need to spend time focused on something that is better and bigger and something more grand than me and my life. And God has called us to prayer, not for his benefit, but for our benefit. It's kind of interesting that even those who oppose Christianity very frequently are talking about the value of meditation. They find substitutes for prayer that still recognize this basic need of man. And I suggest to you that it's important to understand then that prayer has a reason. The church is told to pray for a variety of reasons, one of which is the need that we all have to engage in that kind of activity. How about singing? It was interesting that the Bible tells us to sing. I, I feel very strongly that we need to understand something. Worship is not a spectator sport. Worship is not a spectator sport. And the Bible presents singing as something that we, again, need personally. Colossians 3 and verse 16, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns 
and spiritual songs. You might notice here that we're to teach one another in these songs. They should be offering us information. We should be admonishing one another. We need encouragement. We need to be supporting each other. We need to be directing each other. And we need to do this in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Different kinds of spiritual worship are involved. But notice this is something that we do personally. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Ephesians 5 and verse 19. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Let me tell you a story that I, I, I think demonstrates this so well. There's a song that was written by a man by the name of Lee Greenwood. He's a country and western singer. The song is called I'm Proud to Be an American. It's a beautiful song. It's a very patriotic song. He sings it amazingly well. And some years ago, when the Persian Gulf thing was going on, there was a USO show on the deck of a carrier. And Lee Greenwood was singing this song. And the place was lined with thousands of men and women who were in the military. And this was before the invasion, before Kuwait and all the stuff that went on in connection with Iran. There was a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of anxiety. And Lee Greenwood starts singing this song. I'm proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free. He talks about if everything that I have were taken away, I would, I would be very happy to start over with my wife and my children. It's, it's beautiful. It has tremendous emphasis upon being a part of this wonderful country. But when he got to the end of the first stanza, he stopped the band. And he said to these men and women, armed services personnel, you know, we're all out here together. We're all unified in, in being a part of the United States military. We don't know what's coming. But I really think this song would be much more meaningful, since most of you know it, if you would sing it with me. Everybody was sitting down. Everybody was very quiet as he said this. And he started the song over again. And people started joining in. They got about halfway through the first stanza, and all of a sudden everybody came to their feet. And as far as I was able to see on television, there was no prompting to do this because there were people scattered all over this huge ship. And by the end of the first stanza, they're holding hands. And as they start in the second stanza, there's emotion. You begin to see tears rolling down the cheeks of some of these seasoned military people. <laughs> you can see the, the petite little nurse in her white military outfit standing next to the grease jockey, and they're both flowing tears openly, unashamedly. There was an incredible change because they were involved in singing together, something that they felt in common. And that's what singing should be in church. It's not being entertained. It's not listening to somebody else who perhaps is more capable to do it. It's being a participant. Worship is not a spectator sport. You know, some of my fondest worship memories are being in the mountains with a group of people that I had grown to love and appreciate and under the stars around a campfire singing songs of praise to God. We need that. Jesus said that we needed to be one. Father, I pray that they be one as you and I are one. And we can't have unity if we don't find vehicles that will enable us to be joined together in unison. And singing does that wonderfully. There's a purpose in us being called to sing. You know, it's kind of interesting that anytime there's a Christian program of any kind, people immediately say, when are they going to be asked to give? And uh, one of the things I hope you have noticed in this Does God Exist program is that we don't do that. We, we don't ask you to give. We don't ask you to buy. Our programs are available free on the web. We try to make what we're trying to say available to people without cost. And... Uh, you know, this is a personal thing. It's a very, something I feel very strongly about. 
But in the process of all that, I want to emphasize that, that we are told to give and for a reason. The passages are clear. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, you might file that one away. We'll be back to that in a minute. In 2 Corinthians 9, and verse 7, the early church was told that every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. And then notice this phrase, not grudgingly nor of necessity for God loveth the cheerful giver. There's another important part of what's supposed to be involved in this. There are numerous passages in the Bible that tell the early church that they are to give. And we have the record of the fact, like in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, that the first century church considered giving to be a part of their worship. Now let me ask you to think about something here. Why does God tell us to give? Is it because God is up in heaven saying, boy, I sure hope these people give this morning or we're going to have to file chapter 11? Well, that's kind of silly, isn't it? If God is the creator, then everything we have came from God. If in him we live and move and have our being, then certainly we do not have to worry about whether God has adequate resources. God does not tell us to give because God has need. If every Christian in the world determined right now that they were not going to give one more penny to God, the work of the church would still get done. God doesn't need our money. Every time I say that in a public worship, I have someone who comes up to me and says, I'm really glad to hear that. I don't have to give anymore. Well, yeah, that, that's an indication of a problem, I suggest to you. Let me tell you another story that I've, I've never had the chance to see this, but I'm told about it, and I, I think it's a good illustration of what I'm trying to say. In Palestine, there's two bodies of water that are very famous. One of them is called the Sea of Galilee. I've never had an opportunity to go to that part of the world. Uh, everything I have heard is secondhand. My daughter has been there, and she's told me about it. I've seen movies and pictures of the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful place. In today's world, there's lots of resorts on the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful lake. Wildlife is abundant. There's lots of fish in the lake. There's lots of, of animals around the shore, migratory waterfowl, detour out of the way to come to the Sea of Galilee. People take their vacations there. It's beautiful. One of the interesting facts about the Sea of Galilee is that when scientists measure the water that flows out of the Sea of Galilee and compare it to the water that comes in the inlet of the sea, more goes out than comes in. There's adequate rainfall. There's underwater springs. So the lake actually gives more than it receives. That's a beautiful place. But just downstream, there's another body of water. It's called the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea has no outlet. It's actually below sea level. The water from the Sea of Galilee flows in. There's some rainfall. Other water flows in periodically. But the, the Dead Sea just takes that water. It doesn't give it. It goes nowhere. And the body of water takes and it takes and it takes Water evaporates, leaving mineral deposits behind. The water is so salty that I'm told if you go and, and jump into the lake that you float about halfway up. There are no fish in the lake. Brine shrimp is about all that lives there. No animals around its shores. Migratory birds will detour away from it to avoid getting anywhere near it. Because it just takes, it never gives. And may I suggest to you that human beings are like the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. The person who takes and takes and takes and takes and takes and never gives is a person that's destined to be miserable. They're a person that's going to have nothing but sorrow in their life. No relationships. No satisfaction. And so this statement in Acts 20 and verse 35 is actually true. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And that's not just true of money. Sexual relationships 
function in very much the same way. If you strive to give more than you receive, you're going to find the best of sex. In your dealings with friends, being able to give to them more than you expect to get from them is a way to form friendships that will last a lifetime. Functioning at church, at school, all the things that are a part of our lives, it is, in fact, more blessed to give than to receive. And God has told us to give not because God has need, not because the church has need, but because it is a fundamental need that we have. And I would suggest to you, as 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, that you need to learn to be able to give cheerfully. If it's going to disorient you, if it's going to make you grudging, if you are going to be unhappy, then don't give. Our giving should be something that is spontaneous. This affects our very makeup, our very psychic, our very attitude, in the way we deal with everybody in life and the way we deal with life itself. We are told to give, and it's for a reason. Now, as you look at these other areas on the list here, we only have a few minutes left that we can really do justice to these things, so I just want to very quickly look at a couple of these things with you and just point out to you. We're told that we should teach and preach. That's a very clear passage, a very clear statement of the importance of things that we should do. And you may say, well, I don't, why would I have to go and listen to some guy preach? That doesn't do me any good. Let, let me tell you something. I, I've been around a long time. And I've heard a lot of sermons. And I've been involved in a lot of activities connected with church. But one of the things I have learned, and I learned the hard way, is that I need to be taught. I need to listen to someone else preach. There was a period of time when I was doing 52 lectureships a year. In other words, every single weekend I was somewhere else doing public programs, speaking in churches and what have you. And what I found happening was that as the year went by, I began to run down. I began to lose focus. I began to struggle again with some of the issues that had not been a part of my life and a part of the problems I faced in life for a long time. So I need to go and hear someone else teach. And you say, well, do you hear anything new? No, not usually. When you're as old as I am and you've heard as many sermons as I've heard and read as many things as I've read, you're probably not going to hear anything new. There, there's an old hymn that says, Tell me the old, old story for those who know it best are clamoring and rejoicing to hear it like all the rest. And that's true. We need to have the capacity to be strengthened. And it's important that, that we are together with people who share our common beliefs. We quote the passage in Corinthians that says, Be not deceived, evil companions corrupt good morals. But the question is, does that apply just to teenagers? I need to be with people who share my moral values. I need to be with people that are stronger than I am, who can influence me and strengthen me and encourage me and lift me. When Hebrews 10 and verse 25 says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It tells us to do that for a reason. The Bible teaching is important. It is, it is very important for us to have that kind of association. Now I have to say to you that I'm sort of a hermit mentality. I've been accused of being a social hermit. My idea of a good time is to be in the mountains with a fly rod in my hand and no other human being in sight. But ultimately, I need the support and the encouragement of brothers and sisters in Christ. I need to be with people who will encourage me and support me. Man is not equipped to be alone. And that not only involves our relationship to our wives, but to brothers and sisters in Christ. I would point out to you that, that Jesus said to us that we are to love one another. And my question to you would be, how can I love somebody I don't know? How can I love somebody I'm never with? Being isolated is not the way to grow and to be strengthened. We can talk about the qualifications for leaders in the church. You read what a bishop or an elder is supposed to be in First Timothy and in Titus, and what you find is, that the qualifications are men who are mature. 
Men who have been successful with their families. That makes sense. You see the admonition in the Bible to be active, to be involved. Lots of times I have people who say, well, I became a Christian and it hasn't changed my life. And my question to them is always the same. Well, what have you done? Have you sat back and said, here, Lord, zap me with solutions? Or have you gotten involved? God expects us to do something, to be actively involved, to be doing things, to be outreaching, to grow, to build a ministry. Back in our discussion about why God created man, I pointed out to you that when bad things happen in our lives, those bad things can, can become ministries for us. And there's not a person watching this that has not had experiences that are unique to you. They can become ministries. They are things that you can actively do. And whether your local congregation can support what you do or not, you can actively participate in this. I would even suggest to you that the plan of salvation makes sense. It is logical. How can I possibly expect to be a Christian if I don't believe in God? That's easy. The importance of repentance, the importance of turning my life and being something different, of not continuing to live in a destructive lifestyle, is clear. How can I positively influence the world if I don't confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? If people do not know where I'm coming from, how can I be what God wants me to be in terms of my influence? And finally, may I suggest to you that baptism makes sense. Not to mention living a life that is compatible with Christian beliefs. When I was baptized into Christ, I believe I understood correctly what I was doing. I was burying the old man. Boy, I needed to get rid of the old man. I was putting the old man away. And I was going to come forth a new creature. I could start all over. I could begin anew. That was beautiful. I don't think I've ever gone into a prison and baptized somebody in a prison where the, the person didn't reflect on this point. You know, wow. God has given me the capacity to make a new start. I still have consequences for my previous life, but I can begin anew. It makes sense. It's, it, it, it has real value. Baptism makes sense. And if you haven't studied these conditions, if you haven't looked at these, I would encourage you to do so. In my story of why I left atheism at the end of this series, I will go in more detail about some of this. But if you need assistance in finding someone who can help you in your relationship to church, if you're interested in finding a group of people that just follow the Bible, that are not connected to some kind of a tradition, Contact us, email us, write us. We'll be glad to help you in searching that out, wherever you live. But we hope that in this discussion you have seen that believing in Jesus Christ and following the Christian system is something that can be done intelligently and logically, and I would encourage you to know why you believe what you believe and be a Christian. <clears throat> Some interesting things that uh, Mr. Clayton had to say to us today. I'm going to assume that we have been on since 4 o'clock and that we uh, need to finish right at 5. So we have about 20 minutes left. Uh, I wanted to make some points or other points that, that he made um, that play off of, of what, he, what he had to say. But first I want to do this. Um, there was an old game that uh, we used to say, and I think even psychologists and psychiatrists still use it today in working with their patients. Um, it's called word association. When I say a word, you say back the first thing that pops into your mind. So we're going to do that. They're going to play at home, or are you playing with me? Nah. I, I won't embarrass you. <laughs> uh, no, the playing at home. I'll, and this is just a little exercise to see uh, where your mind goes. The word is church. It's the first thing that comes to mind, especially if you hadn't heard a lesson on the church just now. Let's do another one. Church. Let's do it again. Church. 
and you can't use the same one as you did up front. Your response to, to that word and that concept as it enters through your ears and gets processed around in your head, your gut level responses, your visceral responses to um, the word church might say something about you. Now, he talked about individuals um, who say, oh, don't talk to me about church, you know, and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, Christ died for the church. God sent his son to this world to die for the church. So to minimize the church, its work, its design, its purpose for existing, is really to question God and is really to deny God uh, in, in one way or another. He makes the point early on that um, the word church does not mean what a lot of people associate with the word church, organized religion. Man has done um, a wonderful job of corrupting what God initially planned for his people. A lot of times, I remember, <laughs> I remember my dad, a little eccentric on, on this point, but he would say, you don't go to church. You go to worship services. If you are going to call Bible things by Bible names, the church is not a place. You can say we have a church building and we're going to the church building. And like I said, yes, we are going to attend worship services or something of that sort. Everybody says we're going to church and I think everybody knows, knows what we mean by that. But the church is not the building. It is not um, organized religion in the, the larger picture. When you look at or, organized religion uh, across just our country, not across the world, and we probably have a taste of the world in our country uh, for all religions now in our um, diverse society that we have, um, there, are, uh, there are multiple places, avenues, religions even, that you can go for um, your your religion. And I really don't think that's the way, in fact, I know that's not the way God planned it. He talks in the lesson about the uh, benefit of worshiping and being with uh, like-minded Christians and the strength that is drawn from that. God's plan is unity. I think it was in Jesus' prayer in John 15, 16, 17, where he says, The Father and I are one. I pray that they, the apostles that were with him, and the ones they would teach would be as we are, one like we are. So a lot of people will say, Oh, I think it's a good idea that we have all these different ways um, to worship God. I'm not so sure. and I, I, Well, I'm, I'm very sure. That wasn't God's plan. Um, I don't think that we should think of organized religion when we think of the word church. There's another piece to this. This explanation is not in the Bible, but its presentation is. When I become a Christian, when I undergo the plan of salvation, obeying the gospel, we call it, as he just listed there toward the end. Um, I become a child of God. I become a Christian. I become a member of God's church. That is the body of all believers who have responded in like fashion and done those things that God has required of us to be a child of His. So, there are hundreds of thousands of people, maybe even more than that, across this country and across this world, 
that I can associate myself with when I go there and have this commonality, have this sense of unity, have this sense of support and strength from this body of believers. Now God has set it up also for us to have a local group, a local entity. When Paul went throughout Asia Minor and over into Rome and all the places he traveled and the other apostles, when they would go to these cities and preach the gospel to them, people would respond. Well, what do these people do? What they do is they formed churches. Not large organization, as we call it, church universal. These are church in the local sense. These are local congregations. Much of the New Testament are letters written to local congregations. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, all, all of those are letters written by Paul to the churches that he established there and he continues to feed them the word of God through his inspiration here for things that they need to know. Many of the passages that, that um, uh, Mr. Clayton just, just quoted are from some of those instructing them how to worship, how to remain faithful, how to organize, how to um, be led, how to divide up the labor that goes on within a congregation. So this is part of God's plan as well. It doesn't say anywhere there is a church universal and there is a church local. If you find that passage, you let me know because I've never read it. But the concept is there and it is, it is uh, uh, evident that this is God's plan. So when we think of the word church, we might be thinking on two levels. We might be thinking of that body of believers across the world who have responded in the way that God wants them to respond to become a child of His. And there is that group in many. I mean, there are some uh, towns or cities, I'm, I guess, across uh, the nation, certainly in the world, that don't have a, a uh, body of believers localized there. But in this country, it probably within driving distance, uh, you can find a, congreg a faithful congregation. The other thing about, about this is, is when he talked about sitting on the edge of the Grand Canyon and worshiping or around a campfire. Many of uh, us have gone to camp and grew up going to uh, a church camp of some sort. And we have memories of sitting around a campfire and, and having a worship service, a little devotional of, of some sort there. And some of those settings and some of those situations are some of the most meaningful that we have. It could be that sometimes when we come into a formal worship that there's a, ah, we hope not, but a, 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 it's too comfortable, it's too regular, and maybe even becomes a little uh, sterile for us. Um, getting out and worshiping God in God's creation is a moving experience. Um, and so it doesn't have to be in a structure that is the eighth wonder of the world. It does, I mean, and, and he talks about that and he says, not saying against that, if that's what you think you need to help, you know, give God glory, that's not what the Bible says. God wants our heart and uh, that heart is what it what is important. The Bible is very straightforward. It's very simplistic in its expectations. What he just showed you in, with, in those slides with the blue black background where he said, this is what it takes to become a Christian. These are what we call, although I don't know that they are formally called acts of worship. Uh, these are the things that we are required to do in a variety of different places. Collectively, we, we, we get that picture of here's what we do when we come together. We sing, we pray, we give, we hear a lesson from God's Word, and we observe the Lord's Supper. All of those have purpose. All of those have meaning. All of those are part of His design for us 
to help us draw closer to Him and to help us draw closer uh, to one another. Did you want to say anything in regard to that? Those points I just made. Anything pop up? Yeah, I think that's spot on. Okay, he didn't did mention and didn't dwell on that that um, this idea of of what Jesus did for us among other things is he broke down the barrier between man and God that had been there since man first sinned. Under the old law, he required a um, he allowed a glimpse of what it would be like to have a communion, a relationship, um, a communication with God. Once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, offer sacrifices, and um, I understand that many times the experience of being in the presence of God there in the Holy of Holies was so overwhelming that sometimes they had to pull them out by their feet. Um, Being in the presence of God is all filling is awesome. Jesus broke down that barrier. He, His death and His resurrection provided us with direct communication with God. Jesus, in His role as Savior, functions as a mediator simply because He authored that access. He was the vehicle for that access. And if he's playing a current role in some way, I, I, um, I, I've looked at this and I'm not sure exactly what he does. You know, what, what would Jesus be able to do between me and God that I couldn't do just between me and God? It's a whole other uh, topic and, and issue. So these, these things about worship, prayer, Singing, uh, the 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 feelings that we get when we sing together. Um, I am for the last six years have been part of a uh, barbershop course here in Huntington, Virginia, West Virginia, and um, it has taken my experience in congregational singing to another level, at least in appreciating the beauty of four-part harmony. We have our our hymns, uh, and I have a hymn book here, and I was going to read, uh, I'm going to finish with a a reading of a song that he alludes to, but doesn't point it out as a song in his his talk a while ago. And the, the beauty of the uh, human voice, as it is blended with other voices, Regardless of of the quality that some might judge uh, in that voice or in those voices, is just a moving experience. We are supposed to be focusing on the words. All of those words have meaning and they're well constructed and they have great ideas and most of them are based on scripture. But to hear those words sung in a designed pattern where we are all singing the same thing but on different notes, even if it weren't different notes, even if it was all in unison, it would be beautiful and it would be worship to God. And it was designed to help unify us, to be a somewhat emotional part. He talked about Lee Greenwood uh, and the song, I'm Proud to Be an American or uh, God Bless the USA. And it's, uh, it is a moving song. We, our core, Barbershop Chorus, has learned to sing that. And if we ever get to perform in public again, I am sure it's going to be a moving uh, experience. There are other things that he talked about. The importance of, of teaching and preaching. Uh, and we, I'm not going to go into um, detail here because A, we don't have time. And two, I have hit this this uh, point more than once. We have an obligation to grow. And if the only time we grow is by sitting and listening to someone preach or teach a class, shouldn't be the only time, but if it is, that at least qualifies. We are at least there and we are at least hearing God's Word. I don't think that's always expected of us. 
we are to study to show ourselves approved. We are to be able to give an answer for those who ask us about the hope that lies within us. So um, that is, a, that is a, an opportunity that we have that we should not pass up. So what does your religious organization do? Are the things that, that you do in worship, are the things that the church, that organization does um, inside and outside the church, are those found in the Bible? I was going to talk about how we derive biblical authority, but we got a little bit short on time today. So I will close uh, with, with this notion that he talks about about giving. And he alludes to these two seas that are in uh, the Middle East over in Palestine area. And I'm sure that some of you were thinking as he was talking of a song, a hymn that we sometimes sing. And the poet has put it this way. And listen, there are three verses. The first one talks about the first sea. The second one talks about the second sea. And the third one talks about the metaphor that is implied here. There is a sea which day by day receives the rippling rills and streams that spring from wells of God or fall from cedared hills. But what it thus receives, it gives with glad, unsparing hand. A stream more wide, with deeper tide, flows on to lower land. There is a sea which day by day receives that fuller tide, but all its store it keeps, nor gives to shore nor sea beside. Its Jordan stream, now turned to brine, lies heavy as molten lead. Its dreadful name doth e'er proclaim that sea is waste and dead. So, which shall it be for you and me who God's good gifts obtain? Shall we accept for self alone or take to give again? For he who once was rich indeed laid all his glory down that by his grace our ransomed race should share his wealth and crown. Impressive. It's a beautiful song also. But the sentiment is, what are you? Are you a taker or a giver? And what about God and God's love do you give and share with others? We'll continue next week. Thanks for being with us.